Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Nexus. Building a support a creator program is something all live service game developers should be doing, but without the right engineering bandwidth or marketing expertise, doing so can be a challenge. Nexus's creator program in a box makes it easy for game devs to build and manage world-class creator programs, driving significant growth in conversion, ARPU, retention, and LTV. Nexus has partnered with incredible live service publishers like Capcom, Grinding Gear Games, Hi Res, Ninja Kiwi, and more, and would love to help you, our Navic Gaming Podcast listeners, do the same. If interested in learning more, simply head to nexus.gg slash Novik. There you can learn more about the efficacy of support of creator programs and discover how to easily build your own. Again, that's nexus.gg slash Novik, or check out the link in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Bush, and I am delighted to be joined today by Dylan Collins. Dylan is a serial entrepreneur in the games industry, having founded companies like Demonware, Jolt, and Super Awesome, all of which had successful exits. Today, he's an investor, writer, reader, and someone I've enjoyed learning from. So I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Today, we'll focus the conversation mostly on entrepreneurship, kid tech, and Dylan's budding interest in user-generated content. So with all of that said, Dylan, welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. Hey, Aaron. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, long-time listener. Uh, huge fan of what you guys do. So it's cool to be able to chat. Well, this is going to be a lot of fun, and I appreciate you saying that. So we have a lot to get to, but probably the best place to start is just for you to catch us up to speed on what all you have done in the games industry over the past 20 or so years. So I mentioned three of your companies in that intro, but can you tell us a little bit more about your entrepreneurial journey until now. I shall do my best to try to to answer that in as few a set of words as I can. So I co-founded uh, Demonware uh, back in university with Sean Blanchfield. That was when we were spending more time playing Counter-Strike than we were going to lectures. Um, it was like in the early 2000s. It was just sort of at the dawn of multiplayer gaming. We felt that this was going to be a thing that would be more popular rather than less. It seems kind of very obvious now, 20 years later. So we built a company producing, developing um, what was then called middleware, which was essentially a set of tools to make it easier for game studios to produce multiplayer games. It was all around the matchmaking community lobby, eventually into the state propagation side of things. And that company was ultimately acquired by Activision became part of the Call of Duty stack. And I believe, in fact, I, I know Demonware celebrated its 20th birthday, I think this year or last year, because wow. they sent me a lovely poster, which was very nice of them. And, and that's, that, that's where it all began. So it, it, after that, we co-founded Jolt, which was at the time sort of looking at the emerging social game space. And we started bringing some IPs. We started licensing some IPs to produce social games. That got acquired by GameStop, so I spent a little bit of time in what was then the biggest games retailer in the world as they discovered the internet, which was around about 2010, and worked with their team to buy up a few other digital companies, and then co-founded Super Awesome with a, a collection of amazing co-founders in 2013, which was focused on building digital tools to help content owners and brands with young audiences. I was acquired by Epic Games a couple of years ago. Oh, by the way, notable shout out to uh, an amazing marketing services agency called Potato, which I was chairman of somewhere in between all of that, which got acquired by WPP. So I, I think the short version is I have never had a proper job and I am utterly unemployable. And building companies and helping people build companies is, is sort of what I do and love. I love that. And in a moment, I want to ask you just some lessons you've learned from each of those companies. But first, I just want to ask, 
why have all of your companies been so successful? You don't miss is kind of what what it looks like. Is there any like pattern to like what you've done as a founder or how you've started these companies that has made them all win? I, I suppose like there's there's lots of iterations behind the scenes, you know, when we've built all of these companies. My philosophy is broadly twofold, which is try to understand what is going to be obviously true about the future and try to avoid doing anything stupid um, related to getting there. And that tends to filter out a lot of different things, which leaves you with a very short list of what you might do about a trend that you believe to be true in the future. So like with Demonware, we were very, very, very convinced that the future was going to be multiplayer rather than sort of single player experiences. With Super Awesome, the view was that, hey, there are going to be more kids online rather than less kids online. And I think it's trying to be fairly ruthless about that intellectually when you sort of go at these things and and not let ego get in the way and not let confirmation bias get in the way and, and really try and find lots of people to tell you that you are wrong or you are an idiot or some combination of those things. It's 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 easy to say and hard to do, but that's that's kind of the approach. Yeah, and what, maybe what are a couple examples of what you mean by just like avoid being stupid? <laughs> like, what is that meant for you as an entrepreneur? <laughs> I think it's it's sort of looking, you know, very closely or as close as you can at, at like business models. At when you see a new space emerging, trying to understand what are the components of that new space which are going to maintain value, which are, what are the components which might very, very easily be commoditized? You can, I mean, to sort of generalize an example, you can build something that will be completely free and that will be very, very popular, but is that really going to be sustainable? Obviously on the consumer side of things, maybe it is if you plug some ads in on the enterprise thing, maybe less so. And I suppose it's, it, it is just trying to think through what could be potentially robust as an opportunity to build. Sometimes that, a lot of the time that kind of proxies out to trying to build the hardest thing rather than the easiest thing, usually because you get an interesting sort of selection bias that that sort of happens there. But I think you look at at sort of everything we've seen over the last couple of years as the world, and particularly venture-backed companies, reset to, oh, there's this thing called EBITDA. And people realizing, oh, you mean like we do actually have to be profitable at some point. And I I sort of track that back to sort of first principles along the lines of like, okay, you can build a thing to solve for an opportunity, but like ultimately you do have to make it a viable business. And even if you don't necessarily have to get to that stage for when you're potentially acquired or go public or something like that, you do have to have a path there. Um, and I think it's kind of easy to get very excited by an opportunity without sort of thinking through that stuff. So I, I guess those are those are the kinds of things that kind of define avoiding stupidity or or trying either stupid stuff or stuff that's just way 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 too hard to figure out. Yeah, um, you know, I, I just I don't know. I, I I like to win, and thus I like high probability, which. People say um, it makes me very boring, but I don't know. I guess it also makes us historically right most of the time. So I don't know. I think that's a good way to look at it. And there are certainly a lot of ways to be stupid. So many of which I've I've probably learned the hard way at this point. And maybe you have too, which kind of brings me to my next question, which is, could you just share one memorable lesson that you learned as a founder from each of the, I call it like those three main companies that that you founded? What did you learn along the way? I mean, to be clear, I, I think I have compounded stupidity over the years with all <laughs> the companies. Like it, it's, it's, this is not like my aspiration to avoid it is, is, is from experience in living through it. So I think that's where that, that kind of wisdom comes from. I, I think like, I thought this was a, an interesting question. I, and I would say like, I picked like some quite specific lessons from each of the companies but with demonware like you know we got acquired by activision very very early on and i think most people would agree certainly sean and i looking way back now we we sold way too early and i think with a lot of first-time founders which we were like you you see an acquisition inbound and you sort of think right great we have arrived 
when really, you know, a conversation about an acquisition is just simply a signal that you're doing the right thing and you should probably keep doing it. It is like the earliest signal of long-term success. And a lot of people react to that as being a signal to immediately leave what you're doing. Right. So, you know, we, we, that company was acquired really at the, at the very beginning of its journey. I think with Jolt, like one of the most interesting lessons there was when we had been acquired by GameStop, which was at the time, this was like 2010, 11, thereabouts, you know, and, and at the time, GameStop, biggest video games retailer in the world, heavily shorted company. There was probably about a quarter of the free float shorted at any one point. So they were always under tremendous pressure and they sort of acquired us and a few other companies to roll out a digital strategy. And I think we realized that like, my learning from it was like, unless the compensation structure, the incentive model at executive level is actually based on the thing you're trying to change, it's probably not going to change. So we rolled out some really cool stuff in, in GameStop and, and integrated like user acquisition system with their point of sale. And the whole thing got closed down after a quarter, which was kind of nuts. But again, looking back, what you can sort of understand like the motivations back in there. And then I think in Super Awesome, it was, we knew we had, we had the power of mathematics on our side to what I said earlier, right? Like we built that company on the basis that there were going to be more kids spending more time online, which was, you know, one of the greatest one-way bets, I think, in living history. And we realized, we got to a point where we realized we were right. And that in that situation, like, all you have to do is just not die, right? Which is every startup's remit and every founder team's remit. But like, it is still sort of a thing that we actually realized that, that we had done the hard part by identifying the opportunity and being there. Now we just had to make sure we could survive long enough to do it. I, I would say that like the other lesson, particularly from Super Awesome, is that like just how much in general investors undervalue amazing sales teams. I think that's when you look at the general kind of startup ecosystem of writing, people talk about 10x engineers and people talk about product managers and everything else. And there's not enough people talking about like sales teams. You know, Lee Veach um, was was one of our co-founders, is one of our co-founders. And, you know, he, he really sort of built and led the sales DNA in there. And I, Super Awesome would not have been successful without him and without that team. And I, I think we built a bunch of very interesting technology around that as well, but that was really at the core of it. I do feel, having been in some organizations that value engineers significantly more than salespeople, I, I do think that is still one of the, the greatest sort of disservices to a profession that, that the, uh, the technology world has, has, has had over the last few years. Those are really great answers. <laughs> I'm glad that you you spent some time um, thinking of them. Those are really thoughtful. Um, and I kind of want to to follow that up. Uh, and some of that was reflective of the exit events in in some cases. And obviously, you've spent time as a founder, like on your own in your company. But you also did spend time inside of these larger organizations. And so I'm curious to maybe learn even more about what that experience was like for you, who, as you said, you're unemployable in that kind of structure. <laughs> but then too, just like, what have you learned besides aligning incentives about how to better embed startup mm. teams into larger companies to better set them up for success? I think there's a general rule with big companies that they all think they want to have founders in their midst <laughs> until they realize what they have actually done. It's one of those things where you think you're being locked in a room with me, whereas actually it's the other way around. And I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting when you look back at the three companies, right? Because when you, when you look at, at, at sort of Jolt Demon were super awesome, one is still going today. One was closed down pretty shortly after, and one is partially being spun out at the moment. So we've been through the full spectrum of kind of outcomes on this. Like, I think there's a few lessons in there. These are probably very, very obvious things. But I guess for anyone listening who, who sort of hasn't been through acquisitions before, I mean, I, I think fundamentally, you need to absolutely make sure that you have a champion in the acquiring company. And, that, and to the acquiring company, make sure you have a champion, like someone who is actually accountable for this, as opposed to a corp dev team that's just running it. Like if there is not a single identifiable person who is the champion of this deal, I think there's a very high probability it will fall apart after the deal is done, if it doesn't fall apart before the deal gets done. 
I think like, you know, agreeing again, very, very obvious stuff, like agreeing an integration plan and make, and actually making sure that's transparent to everyone on both sides. Like it's amazing in, in big companies where acquisitions can happen and you're walking into meetings and, and like everyone has no idea who you are or worse, why you're there. And I think just sort of the, the, the transmission of all of that is, is critical. I think <laughs> the thing that anyone who's been acquired will relate to this that will, will realize that you should assume as a founder, like that your average unit of productivity will massively decrease, <laughs> right? So like, if you think like your average unit of getting things done is like a day or a week or something like that, it will change to like probably at least a month and maybe more likely a quarter, like, especially if the company's public, that will be your, like your, your sort of your average unit of productivity in terms of getting anything done. Right. I, I, so I think those are kind of general, general points to founders. I, I think for, for like, if I was on the acquiring side, like, I think there's probably a couple of things. One is, I mean, this is a little bit subtle, but like I, I've seen companies uh, through our experiences, but also elsewhere, like they try and kind of redeploy these sort of generalist leaders on the executive team. And maybe it's the founders or maybe it's part of the, the, the leadership team. And they try and deploy these sort of generalists into like domain specialist roles based on what the company did. And you, you take people who've been running teams of like 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 people, and you're kind of trying to redeploy them into, hey, do this really, really specific thing. And they're used to operating with the team and, and an apparatus. And they're almost being told, hey, go and build some spreadsheets or go and build some PowerPoint, some slides, right? And I think that's a, like, that's a little bit of a, of a, that is a challenge, I think, for everyone involved and people get quite confused. And I think it's, 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 it's back to the point about having an integration plan. I also think, like when it comes to the founders themselves, I mean, there's different schools of thoughts on this, like, hey, you must keep the founders to no, you should tr- probably try and offboard them as quickly as you can. I think like, however you think about that, you should definitely spend the time to really understand like the motivations and probably most importantly, the energy of the founders. Like if, if you're acquiring a, a company like who've been going for like 15 years, like I can probably tell you what the energy of the founders is like, right? Whereas if they've been going like five years or six years, like it might be in a good and interesting place. And I think it's like, again, it's, it's a very subjective thing about trying to understand people's energy, but it really, 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 really matters. Like usually people who build things want to continue building things and they don't like impediments being put in their way. And they can be huge, like they can be really value additive, even to big companies if you give them the right circumstances and the right tools and the right frameworks to go and operate. But you need to spend the time to go and understand what they want and how they're feeling. And I, I think sometimes people either don't know how to have that conversation or maybe afraid to have it. But I, I, I think one day I will probably write a very long blog post about this. Please do. It could even be a book, but it won't be a book, to be clear. It will just be a blog post. <laughs> Are there any companies in or around the games industry that you've observed or you think do like a particularly good job at acquiring that have like the infrastructure, the the right motivations, incentives to be good at it? Or do you think that it's just a kind of a struggle no matter where you are? I think it's always hard for for some reason, whether it's on the founder side or the buyer side. I mean, if, if I look across the industry and I think about conversations people have had. I mean, I, I think there is there is an interesting distinction at least between acquirers that are still founder-led versus acquirers that are like what I would call kind of professional management-led. So in Epic, for example, like it, it's still led by Tim Sweeney. The the DNA around, hey, let people kind of get on with what they're doing, like keep it pretty flat, don't impose a whole bunch of of, of admin and infrastructure on them, like is is pretty clear. I mean You've got companies like Microsoft that are also very practical about acquiring in terms of being able to onboard people and really having amazing sort of onboarding sort of systems and structures for that. I would probably look around at, at who does the high, who is the highest frequency of acquisition, because at least then you've got a, there's there's clearly they're seeing enough volume to generate lessons and learn them. So I, I, I think those two would probably come to mind. I got to say, like, full credit to Activision for, for, for making the success of Demonware that they did. Like, for any, like, in any sector, video games anywhere, like, for something to still be going 20 years after its acquisition, well not, well, not after its acquisition, probably, like, what, 15, 12, 14 years after its acquisition. Like, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And I think, I think companies are probably getting better at it. 
And I think particularly now that you've got more big companies that are being run by serial entrepreneurs, serial founders, I, I, I think that is, is starting to give a lot more empathy to acquisition in terms of like how to onboard them. I mean, I, I think it's probably too early to call whether what Embracer is going to look like in terms of a good or bad acquirer. I mean, they've certainly done it by volume. But I think uh, we have an answer remember. to that. <laughs> well, the share price, the share price perhaps suggests, but 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 we'll see. It's it, it's it, it is a very very interesting topic, and I, I still don't think that I, I don't think investors talk about it enough, actually. And I think that typically in corporates, the people who are involved with it aren't able to talk about it much publicly because their comms teams prevent them. Yeah, there is a lot of that, and companies with different motivations too. And as we see more consolidation in the industry, whether it's around like big platform ecosystems forming or yeah, those growth by acquisition companies, etc. Yeah, I don't know how I, I guess you could see more acquisitions, <laughs> but probably fewer great ones unless they truly are in like a more decentralized kind of way, which even that I guess can not always work out the best. And you see companies like Embracer kind of change from being as decentralized mm. to needing to step in and that kind of changes their identity and just how, the role of what acquisitions even look like and if they make sense anymore. I, I think like there is generally not enough thought given to acquisitions. And, and I do mean that on both sides. And because again, like the the, the all the role of plays are fundamentally doing it for an industrial logic, which which is kind of coming down to EBITDA, right? And and to some degree, like even though those are probably the least personal acquisition machines, at least you sort of know what you're getting, and everyone can be pretty clear on metrics and and what success does and doesn't look like. If you're being acquired by, be like a, you know, it was an acquisition machine. I mean, WPP on the on the advertising side is is still an acquisition machine and just buying and buying and buying lots and lots of agencies, and they've got a very very you know straightforward model for that. You know, whereas I, I I think that like if when you're buying for sort of strategy, whether it's market expansion or product or something like that, I really think you have to get into like the deep humanity of the thing to make sure people are aligned. Like people people talk about values alignment and everyone kind of eye rolls. But like the more I see of this stuff, like the more I kind of bring it back to that. If you're not genuinely thinking about the same thing, it doesn't really matter how much money you throw at people. Like you will see Discord emerge at some point down the line. People people will get they will get frustrated or annoyed or they won't understand why a strategy is being followed. So yeah, I, I think I look, I think I think, you, I mean, this is an obvious thing to say, but I think you will continue to see both good and bad acquisitions over yeah. time. That would be my, my very easy prediction. Yeah, that's fair. Well, let's go ahead and, and switch gears and talk about kid tech, which is the latest industry that your entrepreneurial path took you down with super awesome. I think a good place to start for this conversation would just be for you to describe what you perceive the current state of kid tech to be, especially around online games. What's your view of, of that market mm. and reality right now? My view and the reality, yes. <laughs> and that's, a, that's an interesting contrast. I mean, I would say, like, look, over the course of the last decade, I, there's, when you look at, specifically around gaming, I guess, but you can probably call it consumer services, there's probably been, I don't know, maybe like three or four phases that everyone has gone through. Like, Phase one was like everyone put up an age gate and then ignored everything. Phase two was everyone then added parental consent to be compliant with laws like COPPA and then also ignored everything else. And then phase three, which is which I would argue is probably only started in the last two to three years, was like everyone sort of did all of that, but then has started to think like much more deeply like about young audiences and young audience engagement and and like you've seen things emerge like age verification locked features cabin mode uh, i can talk go into a bit more detail on those if, if, if people are interested and and i think phase four which is somewhere in the future is where you you somehow and there is some magic included in this description for now like that young audiences of like total feature parity right, with older audiences. 
And and I think so. We have moved. We have we have moved from tick box to actual thought being given. But there are still lots of interesting challenges remaining here for interesting technical and psychological reasons. Yeah, the checkbox era was a funny one. <laughs> I think that's I remember that just like even at myself as a kid. I'm like, well, this doesn't do anything because you just say your birthday is a different time or just hit no and <laughs> and you're good. It wasn't really kid tech as as you've pioneered it as we'll see into the future. When we started Super Awesome, and, and Super Awesome was a result of like many, many failures, when one of which was the utter failure to to raise external investment. When we, we went we went out relatively early, 2013, 14, to the Valley to pitch everyone with what we thought was an extremely straightforward pitch. It's like, hey, there are more kids on the internet. There are these laws coming down the line. You are going to need more tools. And absolutely everyone went, no, it's fine. They tick a box. We're good. <laughs> and and that was like I cannot tell you how many meetings I got politely escorted from, where investors just didn't think this was going to need any capital. Um, so yeah, it's it it is it is fascinating and and I think generally good about like how how things have evolved since then. Yeah, I don't totally understand that. So maybe you can unpack that a bit more. I guess surely there's more reason to investors not being interested, the market not being larger it being difficult to raise money than just the fact that there's like, you can type in your age. Like, are there other structural reasons or motivations to why this market has not been able to become larger or raise as much money as maybe it should have? I think there have been a handful of challenges that this this space has gone through. I think, first of all, it is... It is a pretty sizable market. So, I mean, to say that it's kind of broken from an investor point of view is is probably not not super, super accurate, right? I mean, I think like we've seen now in the last two, three years, a range of multi-hundred million dollar and billion dollar outcomes, right? Whether it's Super Awesome or Moonbug or Roblox or, or, or Epic Reading, Epic Learning, sorry. But I think that like the big challenge for investors has always been and I, i'm gonna just sort of skip around advertising for a second because I, I i will come back to that the big challenge for investors has always been like okay how do you build a revenue model around this investment right because nobody wants to utter the line how do kids make money for us right and it's it's that awkwardness i think that has sort of deflected a lot of investor interest from the space. Whereas the reality is that like kids and teens, I mean, this is true for everything up to under 16 in terms of where, where, where the definition sort of lies here. Like they are fully fledged internet citizens with their own independent payment cards and, and they will go and spend money. And like, so the notion that, that sort of people wouldn't treat them seriously is always kind of struck me as short-sighted. Um, so I, and, and I think because you, you kind of had that disconnect between the, the clear identification of the audience, but that lack of sort of forthrightness about the economics, I just think it, it, it became a struggle for investors. And I, I think that was somewhat amplified, certainly in the early days, so I go back to 2013, 2014, by the fact that like none of the big platforms seemed to be taking this seriously. Right. So that was all, it became a little bit of a, like an echo chamber, I think. But I do think like that has changed quite a bit. You now have like, when you look at sort of the total amount of investment dollars going into the kid tech space, and by that I mean like tools to help engagement or to provide engagement with young audiences, but also what's called safety tech, which sort of is what it sounds like, which is tools for moderation and, and community toxicity and things like that. You've got somewhere like about $200 million a year being invested there. Um, but that's normalized. So it was actually more over the last couple of years versus, again, you go back 10 years and it was approximately zero. So I think you are gradually starting to see more investor interest in the space. Nothing drives it like successful outcomes. as you- So, I mean, undoubtedly, in fact, I know for a fact like when you look at sort of the big outcomes, you just like Moonbug, Super Awesome, Roblox, like 
there are lots of people going around right now pitching, you know, the next generation version of Moonbug, Super Awesome, and Roblox, which is which is good. It's great. Yeah, it sort of spawns more optimism. Yeah, that is good. So I'm curious then, what would you say are the big problems left to solve in kid tech, or are the big problems left <laughs> to solve in this like in this like upcoming era that you foresee being well, shuffled in? Obviously, I mean, it could be a long answer, but let me let me let me actually be helpful because I did actually write a blog post about this, which also ended up being quite a long blog post. It's a good one, but thank you. I would say like the top three problems broadly for sort of young audiences and and digital engagement. So it's very applicable to 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 the game uh, ecosystem. Is probably one like sustainable like commercially sustainable kids app stores you still have a situation today where like developers building titles for young audiences are still highly incentivized to not be in the kids and family category because again there's commercial restrictions there and and again it's it's this there's a distinction here between sort of being commercial and exploiting and you need to have like a viable kids developer um, industry very, very simply. And I still don't think people running various app stores around the world have quite gotten their heads around that. I think one of the other things that still hasn't been solved is is like the the challenge for um parental involvement with 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 kids, whether they're playing games or, or using any sort of service. And we've now seen huge amounts of investment into parent tools. You see it at the console level, you see it, see it at the game level. But like Parents are still confused, don't have time, don't care, don't know where to go. Like there, there isn't really like a trusted digital brand for parents that seems to really exist yet. Maybe it's Netflix or Disney or something, but no one is really the whole sort of making it easier for parents to do this stuff, which again is part technology, part psychology, that still isn't solved really meaningfully. And then I would say the third one and my favorite one to talk for hours about is the need for like some sort of universal age API. Like the 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 biggest issue we have is today around around this whole challenge of of kids using services designed for adults is that like age gates are probably the most powerful incentive to lie that our civilization has developed <laughs> to, your, to your example right it's it's i still lie it's like, on hey, those yeah like hey here's the thing tell us something about yourself and here's what you can't get if you tell us <laughs> the truth it's 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 remarkable and and it's this sort of wades very quickly into notions of like privacy and safety and, and, and like lots of very serious internet people get angry about this topic. But like, I do think the only way to make this easier for developers and platforms everywhere is where you have some sort of source of truth for date of birth, which I don't know whether it comes ultimately from sort of operating systems or, or phone activate or device activation or something like that. This is a technically solvable thing, like quite easily. And, but I do think um, I think the challenge is probably the economics of it. Like go, going back to your point on investors, like, well, can you really build this into a into a venture size business? No, you probably can't. Maybe you can, but it's still definitely a thing that needs to be solved. And every, and everyone wants this to be solved. I think that's that's yeah. Clearly, I would talk about this for a long time. So, out of what you just said, what are you most optimistic about improving over the next few years? I think, like, when you look back at what has changed, like, because again, I, 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 like, I get cornered by various people, like, around the world, and they sort of say, okay, like, billions of dollars have been invested in things, game platforms, streaming. Why is the internet still more or less a dumpster fire for kids? And it's like, well, actually, behind the scenes, I mean, this and this and this and this. And they're kind of looking at you going, yeah, but we don't care. It's still like a bit of a mess. But so I like I think I am reasonably optimistic about the future. When you look at the amount, as I said, of of capital that's going into the space, you've got $200 million a year that is being invested into things like kid tech and safety tech. Like you have 
when you look at sort of what the average consumer digital consumer service, whether it's game or streaming or anything like that, looks like for a kid today versus what it looked like five or six or seven years ago, it's it's night and day, right, in terms of support and features and everything else. You look at sort of the success of Roblox, you look at what like Fortnite is doing, you look at sort of the commitments Lego are making into the space. I mean, I, I think when you sort of look at things like, I talked about sort of age verification-based features. When I looked at, I think what Epic, I mean, I'm slightly biased here, but like what Epic did with cabin accounts, right? Which was like, hey, okay, if if, if, if a child age, ages is sort of under 13 or under whatever the age is, you're not blocking them from absolutely everything. You're giving them access to some functionality to get them involved in the ecosystem. That's the kind of thoughtful thinking. That, that I feel you need a bit more of, and, and you are seeing more of. And I think you will see that get rolled out more and more by, by a lot of, I mean, I know a lot of the big game developers who haven't announced things are going to be announcing things over the next sort of year or so, like around support for young audiences. It is definitely getting better. And somehow someone will solve the universal age API thing. I, I, it might take more than five years, but it definitely won't take more than 10 years. That is my, that is my bet with you, Aaron. Great. That's that's great if that happens. Definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely root for it. Final question on this topic before we move mm-hmm. on and tying it back more directly into just the games industry and and all the the leaders and people from those companies who are listening. What yep. should more games teams be doing regarding kid tech that maybe most teams are not doing today? or that they just need to keep an eye on over the next couple of years for like these new um, improvements to come that they should start embedding soon? I mean, I think like, I think everyone probably underestimates just how disruptive the audience you're talking about is going to be for absolutely everyone, like game developers across the board. Like, you know, the, the, when you look at sort of Gen Z, which is everyone under, under 24 and, and, and sort of Gen Alpha, which is everyone under 13, like, they are going to have a bigger generational disruption than anyone. I think even a bigger generational disruption than like millennials who sort of essentially grew up with the internet because they're like Gen Alpha, Gen Z, like they are, they are native users of TikTok, of UGC, of generative AI. Like, as I said, they've got the financial firepower, like in terms of their own, their ability to pay, like they are default creator not default consumer like which is a huge huge shift like and i really think people are almost everyone is 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 under thinking this my my i have a general bias around like so for anyone listening to this on the game development side like anyone who is working on product that is going to interface with people under the age of 24 like I don't think this is legal to be clear, but I feel that everyone should have kids. <laughs> like it, it's 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 a remarkable. I mean, this has changed a bit in the valley, like and with and, and with sort of general tech, but like it's amazing how many like tools and services for parents or for kids for that matter are built by people who are not parents or do not have kids, right? And and that's that to me seems kind of nuts. So that would be a thing. I, I think people should spend a lot of time looking at what everyone else is doing. I mean, I, I talked about what Epic has done with cabin accounts, which, which again, my my association aside, like I really think was a benchmark in terms of like how do you support young audiences in a way that doesn't block them out. Like that was very very cool. And I think the other like the third point is is you everyone has to move away from assuming that young audiences don't equate to revenue. And I am I'm blunt enough to be able to say that in those terms. But I think like the organizational politics that, that I've seen developers run into when they're trying to have conversations like this, they often just get shot down with, with, with some version of that sentence. And it's like, hey, these, these, are, like, these are real consumers. They want to be considered consumers. They want to interact. They value your content. They want to be able to pay for things. Like treat them with that level of respect. So I, I think those are are sort of off the top of my head and somewhat flippantly some things I would think about. But definitely like make sure your product teams have, have actual parents on them. That's 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 a real thing. Sounds like good advice. Well I want to switch gears again this time to the realm of user generated content. And first question I want to ask is just why has this corner of the industry caught your attention lately? And what are you most enamored by when 
I'd like just as you spend more time looking at it. I mean, I, I spend time looking at lots of things as well, but like, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think it's caught my attention recently. Like, I mean, for me, at least my definition, UGC probably goes back to like PC mods back in the for mid, sure. late nineties. Like, I, so I, like to me, that's all, that's all kind of UGC. I mean, I, I think the, the, the fascination I have with, with UGC platforms at the moment is, is sort of like the combination of that with like the, the, the uniqueness of this audience that we're seeing, right. The sort of the Gen Z, Gen Alpha audience, like everyone under 24, um, like, so it isn't really just about creation because we cannot creation because we had that before. It's not just about distribution because that was kind of there before. Like it, it's about the fact that like you you actually now also have like real monetization opportunities for creators combined with all of these things. Like it's 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 breaking down like the the sort of the historical barriers with professional kind of content creation. I mean, we've seen that with video, obviously, for for a long time. Um, but the fact that we're now seeing it across games, like at a moment where like hours spent gaming are now roughly the same as online video, streaming video. And post-COVID, you're sort of seeing the 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 displacement of all the social activity moving into gaming. Like I I think Charlie Munger, if he was still alive, like would call this sort of the Lollapalooza effect. Like where you've just got all of these things happening at the same time, like in this massively sort of overlapping phenomena, and it's all sort of being localized within Roblox and within Fortnite and, and within a couple of other places. So I, I just think it's it's a fascinating confluence of factors, both demographic and technical and distribution, that I don't think we've seen before. And it makes me intrigued and excited um about about a lot of different things and i suppose also having been in epic for the last three years and had a ringside seat to it it's 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 hard not to be yeah well let's talk about that specifically uefn we've covered this across a few episodes and novic digest and obviously it's only about nine months after launch so still very early days for the platform but it appears to be off to somewhat a slow start but I'm curious, even just like early performance aside, like what are your Im- early impressions of this platform? So UFN, yeah, look, I mean, my my very honest assessment of it is that it's it's still, I mean, as you say, it's still early. I mean, the 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 more accurate technical term is probably very early, right? I, I think a lot of people sort of can't help but compare it to Roblox. But like, I just think that's totally the wrong thing. I mean, Roblox has had like, what, 16, 18 years of development? Yeah. Like, and and I think what the 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 team in Epic have pulled together in UEFN, like, is is remarkable given sort of the relatively short gestation period. I think it, to me, I, I mean, again, this is, absolutely my opinion and, and, and not epics you know uefn is 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 really about building titles for the fortnite community like so i i feel and I'm, i mean i guess a bunch of people do this but i, I do think it's, it's it's it makes more sense to compare it to steam in that respect rather than roblox right like i i think roblox obviously didn't doesn't have its origins as a game like it is a much much more kind of casual game platform like I, I suspect everyone is probably going to like undervalue UEFN for probably quite a while until a smash emerges, right? Like, and I, I, and I, and I think the interesting, like the, the Lego Fortnite game, which is coming out, like is in many respects, I think is, is kind of a preview of what's going to be possible for UEFN. And Again, yeah. Hopefully, by the time this airs, that sentence will have totally made sense. <laughs> but I, but but I think that it, it is very much a an audience play, and the power of the Fortnite audience, which we've kind of seen, like with with the recent resurgence from 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 OG, like is is very very real. And I think this the same was sort of true with with, with sort of Steam in the early days. But I feel it it will just take time. I mean, I you, you if it's been out like what did you say nine months? Uh, like, yeah, it's 
you know, developers are still only just be able to be getting their 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 hands around it. Like there's still a lot of features to be rolled out. I think you've got to look at it probably over at least a two year time frame before you can really sort of give it give it an assessment. Um, but I I I wouldn't like I definitely wouldn't underestimate them. I think everyone will, but I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems like the typical hype cycle <laughs> that you see with many hmm. new technologies, many new products. People get very enamored by the idea of what something can be yeah. faster than it can actually become that thing that people are excited about. And then there's a, a building yeah. period and then it gets there eventually. And I think I'm with you that that'll probably be the case here. And it's really exciting what they're doing. I also wanted to ask, well, when you look long term at what this platform can be, especially since you spent some time in Epic, how do you think it will be unique or different and kind of like mark its own stamp compared to a Roblox in order to kind of chart its own path to be its own way? Like you mentioned, being for the Fortnite community, that's one difference. But what are maybe a couple other differences that kind of shape how you think about it longer term? I mean, I think this is probably going to depend on other things which have not yet been decided. I think, and this is very much me speaking with my advertising hat, and I think I think if Tim was here, he would definitely not agree with this statement. But like <laughs> there there is, I think when you think about like the distribution of Fortnite, like it is so penetrated on consoles. Like whereas Roblox is about roughly 75% mobile. Like if I'm an advertiser, like the notion of like being able to appear on sort of big giant screens is many, many, many times more compelling than appearing like on a small little smartphone screen, right? And so when you think about whether it's it's how brands show up or integrations or things like that, like as a as a sort of a a an exhibition stage for brands, I think that's long-term going to be very, very interesting to see how that plays out versus Roblox. I do think that the nature of the, the, the nature of the audience will determine, I think, the nature of the biggest games. And again, when we look at, at, at what's going to be sort of launching on the platform soon and the sorts of, of things that have been hits, I could absolutely believe that there will be some extremely large games that might look like Battle Royale that will come out. And that would be good and that would be healthy. I think whether I think people sometimes position the two on a fidelity level in the sense of it's it's sort of UE versus Roblox, right? From a from a visual fidelity perspective. I don't know whether that's gonna matter or not. Right. And historically, like games have never let like visual fidelity get in the way of popularity. But I do think that like the 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 tools are definitely there with UEFN. And the distribution, like particularly onto console, I, I do think we've gotten to the point where everyone is probably under. As I'm saying this again, I think everyone's underestimating Epic, and by extension, underestimating UEFN with where this can go. I mean, I would say broadly, actually, about both, like UEFN and Roblox, like that, everyone is also underestimating how long these platforms will be around for. Like, I just, I don't. Like if, if you were to try, if you were to consider building a competitor to Fortnite or to Roblox today, like it's it's not impossible to do, but it's getting increasingly impossible to do, right? No matter how much capital you were to throw at that, like the ability to try to break through all of the noise and get to the scale of either of those companies. I mean, Roblox is is what, about 70 million Dow, like Fortnite was about what, 45 million last weekend. They were able to do things in their history that are simply not possible today or in the future. So I do feel that like that there is there is there is a moat that is that is being created that is actually getting bigger. And again, I, I think people are, are probably underestimating that long term. And I think that's going to be a factor for for both of those platforms. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I I saw a few months ago when I was looking at the Roblox numbers, their R&D run rate recently tipped $1 billion just for just for new R&D, not even considering all the things that they've built over the past couple decades. And there are basically very few companies, very, very, very few companies that can 
compete on that level to ever even have a chance of catching up. And those that can probably won't. So yeah, I think that moat mm. is real. It's interesting to hear you say that people are underestimating the long-term potential uh, of these platforms and how long they'll be around. Roblox is a $25 billion company. And it seems like, at least in investor circles, there's a lot of sentiment around like, it's so expensive. And to me, I'm just like, yeah, but kind of like the the thing that would make Roblox still be like a great investment from here is that longevity piece. It's being able to grow faster for longer than everyone else is thinking. So I think I'm pretty maybe aligned with you on just that longevity side and it even just being potentially being underestimated in more ways than one. But I, I want to get your thoughts on Roblox too. You can comment on that, but also just anything else related to Roblox that like has your particular attention right now, I'd be curious about. The sheer time being spent there by 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 Gen Alpha and and and, and Gen Z and and I mean this is true in Fortnite as well I suppose but 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 I guess Roblox talks about it much more they have to they're public and and the the displacement of of the activity and how it's it's sort of managing to sort of aggregate a lot of different habits there like and I think we are probably I I, I think both from from Fortnite and from Roblox I mean this gets fully into prediction territory like you're going to see the emergence of like if you go 10 years from now and you look at like one or two of maybe the top 20 most valuable consumer companies i would be willing to bet that one or two of those will have emerged from something in either fortnite or roblox right whether that's like some sort of some some sort of game that's been built or an experience that's been built or, or a process that was being enabled there like I, I just going back to the Lollapalooza effect that we're seeing, right? I just think like these are these places have like the density of activity and the density of talent, and they've got the distribution. And I, I this is where I mean, if if I was, um, I guess Sam Altman doesn't run Y Combinator anymore, but this is where I would be fishing for like the next generation of like very very interesting startups. And I, I think like in the way that sort of Starbucks sort of like was was always seen as the perpetual home of like founders getting together and sort of actually figuring out the company they were going to build. I could believe that Roblox is going to be that and, and and Fortnite maybe to a slightly lesser degree, but like both of those like over over the next few years. I mean, I, I think there there's a whole topic which we should talk about around advertising in both of these platforms, but but you maybe want to punt that until later on. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm just curious. You mentioned just young people and something and just like a younger generation of entrepreneurs. I've I'm so curious to see what young Gen Z, Gen Alpha, how they view building and in the games industry and around the games industry just differently from what we have seen so far. And I think we're starting we're we're starting to get like the tip of the spear of of what that could look like with these platforms. But yep. you are an investor. You're looking at these spaces. You've obviously spent a lot of time around kid tech and such that kind of relates to to this to some degree. W- what are you looking for in terms of like differentiated founders, differentiated ideas, like just like what is different from the past that is like extra interesting, potentially being built on these platforms or in this space? I mean, I don't know if it's, I, I, I think what's different to the past, or at least different to the recent past, as I've said, is 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 the nature of the audience, right? The fact that you now have, uh, this is a general point, but it's generally true, like almost everyone under the age of 24 is, is a default creator of some type, right? It is not just, if you go at least probably like 30 plus, 35 plus, people's kind of default pattern with content is just to consume. And I think that's that that is absolutely a, a huge a huge difference. I mean, I, I think that you are also seeing for everyone sort of under the age of probably mostly kind of Gen Z, right? As they are as they are growing up and hitting eighteen and being able to sort of you know do more commercial things, they are growing up in an environment where interest rates are, are five five and a half percent, right? Whereas all the millennials mostly kind of grew up or came of age like in 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 sort of zerp right in in zero zero interest um, environment so I, I think 
that's that's a point that will probably take some time to emerge in terms of the differing financial environments and what that means for building business. I think because like a lot of people, a lot of sort of let's say twenty something founders that I talk to like today, they are very comfortable hacking on different things and trying and trying and trying and trying and realizing they don't need much capital to do it. I mean, I think that like the amount of capital to start a company has been decreasing pretty consistently, maybe almost exponentially over the last few years. But like, it really doesn't take much. And again, that has sort of coincided with a bit of an anti-VC rhetoric that you're hearing. There's a lot of stuff kind of goes sideways and people blame VCs for giving them too much money, and which I think is a little bit disingenuous, but however. So I, I think you're, you're, you're seeing like the emergence of, of sort of a, cl- a new class of company builder that is like a, a curious mix of like both extremely ethical and extremely capitalist at the same time. And I, I'm not sure where that goes. But it's it is it is sort of fascinating to look for. I mean, my my like I as I said, I spend a lot of time sort of trying to look for things that are obviously true, and then also trying to avoid doing stupid things. So as a result, I invest in very very few opportunities. But like it, it is kind of, and this sort of comes back to the acquisition conversation as well. It it, it is about looking at founder values, like and and you know how do they think about incentives how is their determination and energy how are they about kind of costs and and like responsibility to money economics and and sort of cash flow models and things like that um and i would then also say i mean i guess i sort of implied this all the way through but but the one big 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 difference that i'm seeing with all the conversations is that everyone realizes that they have to build profitable things now um it is not and, and even three years ago and i'm sure you've seen this through lots of your conversations too like everyone was sort of default, okay, I'm going to raise pre-seed and then I'm going to do seed and then I'm going to do series A. And like half the presentation is their schedule of when they're going to raise external capital. And whereas now it's everyone knows what EBITDA stands for, which is which is cool. So I, I that's about as much as I can say about what I'm seeing or what I think I'm seeing, I think in terms of the new generation of founders. It, it's, it's very cool. I learn a lot from them. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to to see what this new generation looks like. I do think it, there are going to be quite a few differences just in terms of like where they come from, from the platforms that they use, both like mm-hmm. device wise, but also that like the games are built on how socialization works, how the creator mindset works. It's just there's so many things that like add up to just being different in terms of how your worldview or your industry view would shape up. I think there's also like I'm seeing in a few other spaces, like a lot of hybrid business models. Like people, people are not afraid to, for example, people are building sort of um, product companies and they are thinking very, very early on almost about, about like what, what would be sort of a merchant media strategy as in like they're spinning up sort of an ad or a brand business around the product, like almost like very, very early on as in, Hey, we have, we have customers who are coming in to buy this. We should also be able to deliver them some kind of brand engagement or ads. And it's, it's sort of Eric Sufert's line, right? Everything is an ad network. I was literally and, just thinking uh, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great minds. Shout out to Eric, by the way. He's, he's, he's great. But, it's, but it's, it's interesting that people are completely comfortable running these kind of hybrid models. Or you see it elsewhere, like in music, where you might get creative agencies that then also are spinning up music labels and signing artists and all sort of doing this within sort of like one kind of entity. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, well, we got to start wrapping up now. So I have three final rapid fire questions for you. One is just what else in the games industry are are you excited about? It could be a game, could be a company, could be a trend. What else is is piquing your interest today? Um, what else is piquing my interest? Uh, I am looking forward to seeing the reaction to everything that Lego is doing with Epic because I think that represents a lot of work, A, but B, a lot of very sort of long-term thinking by by a company that is has not historically done much in well has done a lot in the game space but not not quite as strategically as it is here so i think that's kind of cool i am looking forward to seeing like what a lot of the startup new apparel brands do with gaming so like you see all the big sort of like you know gucci and various sort of big luxury brands doing things there but like I'm fascinated to look at like what Hoodrich and Trapstar and Cortez and, and, and all these sort of like interesting new sort of urban labels. 
start to do about gaming because they have built all of their businesses mostly around TikTok and influencer and video. And so much of that world, music as well, has kind of not ignored gaming, but just hasn't quite figured out what to do. Um, and I think that that's kind of cool. I am kind of very interested still by like, you know, how the world of brands and advertising finally cracks um, UGC platforms. Like for, for roughly 15 years, everyone has been talking about sort of some version of in-game ads, right? And no one has really made that work. And I've had hundreds, possibly literally thousands of, inter- of uh, meetings with agencies who are like, hey, how do we reach the gaming audience? And no one has really been able to solve that. And I think we're like looking at where Roblox is going with a lot of that. I think they are starting to put like the rails in, in, in place to maybe you know, make that a little bit scalable. I think it's still very, very early. But that is that is a thing that I feel has some degree of inevitability to it. It's it's hard to call the timing on that. And and if I look at presentations on in-game advertising from like 2007, they look exactly like the ones I see today, which is kind of funny. So I think that's pretty fascinating. I am intrigued by by VR just because like I've had, I'm sure you've had lots of versions of these conversations where everyone sort of says, yeah, it's definitely going to be a thing in 10 years. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And nobody knows how we get there. Nobody. And and I just don't know what that means. Um, but it, it still sort of sits there as a thing I scratch my head about every so often. Um, and then I think finally, I'm still like challenged by how I find more time. I need, I need a more compressed way of playing games that isn't just watching them at more, greater than 1x speed. That's just not, not fun. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's still like there's, I have a problem that sort of looks like that kind of shape. So that's, that's probably my, my immediate list. No, those are great. I, I think I'm aligned on, on a lot of those as being exciting. Next, what are a couple book recommendations you'd have for, for our audience? So you're a big reader. I know you read a lot about businesses, business history, that type of thing. Any, any favorites you want to shout out? Oh, I mean, I have so many. I think, let's see, what should people read? I think if people haven't read the Intel Trinity, which is sort of the original, the, the history of Intel, which everyone's probably eye rolling and going semiconductors really, but like it, it really is the foundation of so much of Silicon Valley. Like it, it really, really is worth reading. I think the other thing that's very good is the Power Law, which is sort of it. it, it it's actually they're quite good to read side by side because it's it's sort of the history of, of VC and it kind of goes back to the investment behind Intel actually and everything that came after through the seventies and eighties. And it also gives it's, it's a great book for founders to read. So that they can kind of truly understand how like the business of investing works. And I've I've always sort of like gotten quite a lot from that. And then I would also say, just as a general like piece of advice, given the week that's in it, like any there's a there's a couple of very famous speeches that Charlie Munger gave. Um, they're all sitting around YouTube. One was a I don't think it was a commencement speech, but there's one just it's on YouTube. Um, go and listen to that. And bookmark it and set a reminder to listen to it once a year. Like it's basically about his collect. Like he 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 was a collector of human biases, and he goes he lists them, and like just you know examples in history and in business of where these showed up, and it's just you can that guy is it was just one of the wisest human beings like that that to 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 to, to that we've had exposure to. So he really is worth spending time. Yeah, so those would be my 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 rapid fire. But I mean, I'm I'm on Goodreads in public, so people should hit me up if they want. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to check out those books. I also feel like the games industry is kind of insular sometimes, and more people should study <laughs> other industries because you just learn yeah. so much. Oh, uh, it's, it's 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 a really good point. I, I I complain about that a lot. Like there there is um there's a lot of other places out there that have figured out a lot of these things before. And not every wheel needs to be reinvented. Yeah. Um, well, final yeah. question for you, Dylan, is for people who want to follow along with your writing, your reading, your your ongoing thoughts, where should they go? <laughs> if you don't mind some fairly raw 
unvarnished thoughts. I mean, I write stuff on 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 uh, on DylanCollins.com. I'm on Twitter, X, Threads, LinkedIn, all the obvious places. Just search for me, and you'll you'll kind of find me. But I, I sort of I, I I veer around in terms of topics. I don't stick specifically to like youth or digital or gaming. It is pretty broad. So if you're into eclectic stuff, there I am. Well, I've enjoyed it. DylanCollins.com. But let's go ahead and wrap up there. Dylan, I really enjoyed getting to learn more about what you've achieved and what you're thinking about. So thanks for hopping on and best wishes and everything you dream up next. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.